0: I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Hello, welcome today to the Sydney Writers Festival. My name is Manisha Ramin and I'm from the Centre for Inclusive Design and I'm delighted to welcome you all here today to talk about future cities And we'd like to start by acknowledging, of course, the traditional owners of the land that we're on here today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, recognising Elders past, present and future. I'd also like to recognise and acknowledge all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the room here today as well. You know, we're so lucky to actually be in a physical space again after quite a long time. And I'd just like to reflect on this space that we're on today and remember that under this concrete and clay, um, this place that we all get to gather, this land is and always will be Aboriginal. Today I'm joined by three incredible writers, Fiona, Alison and Jess, and it's been such a pleasure to read their work and read with, I guess, the passion that they all have for creating difference and looking at things in a different way. So I've been on a real journey of words with their words in the last few weeks, and today I'm hoping to take you all on a little expedition through the familiar and the unfamiliar as we explore the cities that are, that could be, and that were. All of our authors and their books take us on paths less travelled to new possibilities. So we can play a part together, I think, in not only listening to their words and reading their work, which I all recommend that you all do, but also reflect on what we can all do, what we can take, how we can inhabit different spaces, and how we can take some agency with us as well through their words and their thoughts. So it gives me great pleasure now to introduce all of our three guests. The first is Jess Scully. Hey, Jess. Hi. <laughs> so Jess is an advocate for the creative economy um, and also the role of cities for the future. She's the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney as well. Hooray for that. Previously, Jess has curated projects including the Vivid Festival, Vivid Ideas, actually, um, TEDx Sydney, and she's worked as a public art curator, policy advisor, magazine editor. And this is her first book that we're talking about, *Glimpses of Utopia*. Can I just say how incredible this is as a first book? Thank um, you, Manisha. Thank you. No, it really is. Like, the si- well, we'll talk about it more. You can tell I'm quite excited about this. Um, but fantastic book. We also have Fiona Murphy with her beautiful book. Now, Fiona is actually a deaf poet and essayist. Her works actually have been published in a whole range of publications, including Kill Your Darlings, Overland, The Big Issue and The Griffith Review. In 2019, she was awarded the Overland Fair Australia Essay Prize. And this memoir of hers is The Shape of Sound. And it's about the corrosive power of secrets, stigma and shame. Actually, Fiona, like Jess, has had many lives as well. So you've worked in so many other industries as well, as a therapist, as a writer, so many things. And I'd like to bring that up because actually all of our um, Panelists today have had multiple lives, and I think that actually adds to the richness of the work that they have. We're 300 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, and Alison, on that note, um, <laughs> is actually a Wollongong and Wadawada woman. Um, she's also an award-winning designer, a film producer whose next film is being produced or is being designed at the moment. Right. Um, she began my eyes. at the New South Wales Architects Office in the late 90s, um, and she links Indigenous stories and traditional knowledge to contemporary design. Because who said the past had to stay in the past? She's appeared for eight years as a regular panellist on the ABC TV show The New Inventors, and in 2015 was inducted into the Design Institute of Australia's Hall of Fame. She's an adjunct associate professor at the University of Technology's Design School and a founder of the National Aboriginal Design Agency. And together with Paul Mehmet, she's written this book called Design Building on Country. <laughs> So welcome, welcome, welcome to Jess, Alison and Fiona and welcome everybody for making the time to come today. So I'd like to start, what we're going to be doing is lots of talking, lots of questions and also some short readings inside that as well. And I thought we'd like to really start with Alison. Thank you. Been a long Point, the site
1: of Australia's most recognisable building, the Sydney Opera House, was known by the traditional owners of the land as t'baogul, meaning where the knowledge waters meet. What was the knowledge held here at the confluence of the saltwater and the freshwater where the tank stream meets the ocean? The site was home to extensive middens said to be 12 metres high, which is testament to the abundance and variety of seafood in the area. After the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788, this place was taken over for cattle and renamed Cattle Point. Then, as construction started on the buildings on Macquarie Street, the middens were repurposed into a lime slurry to form the building's foundations, and the place was again renamed, this time as Limeburner's Point. The knowledge about how to crush the shells and release the lime to bind stone and bricks for building was something that my people practised. I'd regularly camp on the south coast with my extended family over weeks in the summer. And one year, all it did was rain, day after day, about two weeks, reducing our campsite to mud and water. My aunties collected shells in buckets and then crushed the shells, adding spit and water until they made a rudimentary concrete that they laid underneath our tents so that we could stay longer that year. The value of this shell resource was not lost on the colonists who used it to build the very foundations of the colony. They were building modern Australia from countless stories, campfires and meals that were shared over 65,000 years. This is building on country as a usurper, not a collaborator. The colonists came and appropriated a site and its contents for their own purposes, to recreate buildings, farms and landscapes of their British homeland on an ancient site that had nourished the Gadigal people physically and spiritually for millennia. The purpose of the new buildings was to honour the memories of other places far away with a different climate and a different plant and animal species. The places were renamed, which meant that the knowledge and the meanings encrypted in the First Nations language of these places was overlaid, often with simplistic descriptions of the site's function, as in Cattle Point. Such a practice completely changed and confused the identity of these locations. Even the renaming of Ghoul to Benelong Point in the 1790s after the senior Eora man, who became the interlocutor between the natives and the British, had done little to show the true meaning of the place where the knowledge waters meet. For many years, building practices in Australia have overlaid international styles on this land but there is now a growing movement to understand the stories and original names. In Australia, the term country has recently been capitalised in many written sources in an attempt to carve out a different way of engaging with place. There is a genuine interest in diving deep into the rich and complex culture of Indigenous people, especially their ecological relationship to the land. I felt, like, really nervous because, like, it's like a reading test in front of everybody. <laughs> but I nailed it.
0: You did nail it. You so nailed it. So nailed it. And, you know, I have to say it was amazing reading your work because I think sometimes we feel like we know this place that we're in and we name things and we know the stories of the places that we're around. I think one of the things I loved about this work was that it again, unpeels yet another layer of what we can unearth, right, um, and how we can create from those seeds as well. Mm, exactly. So, and on that point, I mean, like, it's, it's been a really interesting year, right, and you've written some incredible books, the three of you. I'm fascinated by how you went about this process. Why this book? Why now? What do you want people to know um, when they read this? It's so a big question, but... Um, interesting one, hopefully. I had no
1: intention of writing a book. (laughs) Um, At the time, um, I met Sally Heath, the publisher who's here somewhere in the darkness. Um, I was actually making a series of films. I'm primarily a filmmaker and a sculptor. I was making a series of films on Indigenous science and technology and just how... Which was unreal for me because it was I was really deep diving into traditional knowledge for the f- yep. really the first time in my life and realising that this there was this system of observation experimentation and trial and error that had been going on here for 65,000 years that made you know the culture so successful and that that was actually a scientific practice and so anyway I was making a, a series of films and yeah Thames and Hudson Australia sort of said well let's Let's do a, a series of first knowledges. And the first book, Song Lines, is incredible, like so incredible by Margot O'Neill and Lynn Kelly. And because I was sort of trying to convince Bruce Pascoe and others to join forces and do it, I sort of had to put my money where my mouth is right. and hurry up and write one as well. <laughs>
0: Um, on my background, which was in architecture and design. So what did you learn about cities as you were writing? Because sometimes the process of writing can actually be quite transformative in itself, right? And coming from someone who's a filmmaker and a sculptor, it's it's a different practice.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I th- these books are really written... Um, they're, for, they're readers, therefore mm. they're sort of aimed at, um, you know high school, early adult, you know, they're meant to be very... taking very complex subject matter that's often written about by researchers and academics, and so, which is probably... You know, it's about really making the invisible visible. So, I mm. think to do that very well, we want every single child in Australia to read all about traditional knowledge, to know all about song lines so that, you know, as they're moving through this country over time, mm. they know the stories of this land, because if you don't know the stories of this land, you'll never truly belong. So Mm. for me, it was easy because it was kind of like very conversational and I love talking, so I just wrote like that.
0: Beautiful.
2: (laughs) Um, Jess? Well, I'm an optimist by nature, but um, I think I'm also an optimist because I meet incredible people all the time, you know, who are shaping the kind of future that we can actually look forward to. And so when I see how... uh, you know, despondent and, and anxious people are about the future, I kind of thought I need to give them some of what I get from meeting people and, and discovering projects that are shaping a better world. Because I think what we lack right now is the imagination and the discourse to choose an alternative future that's worth fighting for. And so for me, the book was about putting that all into one place. And again, it was my wonderful publisher Lex Hurst from Pantera who, who pulled the book out of me um, because I was so, going in so lots of directions. Question, how did she pull it out of you? Because very an incredible book. long thread. And um, <laughs> uh, you know, I went through lots of different iterations in terms of to get to this point because it's such a big story of, mm. you know, to to literally shape a different kind of future, we need to look at everything from politics to economics to finance to city making, tax and care and and, and creativity and all of these things. Um, and, and I wanted to try and knit all those things together. And so I went down lots of rabbit holes and she tried to keep me on track with it. Um, but, but really for me, it was about trying to show that there are better futures and they're not just theoretical, they're in practice, they're just not right here and right now, or they might not be in the public discourse. Um, So it's about sort of introducing people to all of the wonderful uh, alternatives that are already in
3: place around the world. And Fiona? Um, Kind of the crux of the memoir was, um, I hadn't even really thought about talking to anyone about my deafness. It was very much a secret that I kept to myself with the guise of wanting to blend into society as much as possible, never bring it up for the fear of being considered deaf and dumb in the sense of intellectually not capable or competent. And that was something that I had really picked up through um, schooling of that idea of if you're in any way different you will be treated differently. And the expectations just are really rock bottom for anyone with a disability. But my approach to it, because I was so petrified and bound to my secret, I didn't have any disabled friends, let alone friends who were deaf. And I really didn't identify as deaf at that stage. So I turned to research, like it sounds like both of you very much dove into the idea of research, trying to find answers, but then taking that dense, very academic kind of framework and just humanising it and making exactly what Alison said, making the invisible visible. And Mm -hmm. for me, that was really kind of um, articulating what the deaf experience is like for people. And deafness is, or any sort of hearing health issue, is incredibly common. And one in six Australians has some form of hearing health issue, whether that's ranging from tinnitus to hearing loss to Meniere's disease, whatever it is, it's, you know, deaf people or you may experience it yourself, but we're just not present in the discourse of um, how future cities are built or how systems are built. And so if you were
0: part of that discourse, then as we move into that thing about what is a future city, really?
3: Um, What would make a future city more livable? do you think? I think a a really great thing that I got from Jess's book was the idea of a democracy being embedded into all aspects of society. And I think that's really important in the design process. Quite often with uh, accessibility and inclusion, it's very much at the end point of the design, kind of as an afterthought of, oh, wait a second, how do we do this? And it's kind of one size fits all in the approach of let's put a ramp in. Beautiful. We've done our access. We're fine. Without considering that inclusivity and accessibility isn't a one size fits all approach at all. It's a conversation that is ongoing and evolving and incredibly robust. And it must come from a point of um, democracy and inclusion, And part of that with the design process is the idea of economy of scale. And a lot of that has come from the standardisation of what is a normal body is really what is an average body. But that doesn't actually reflect who we are as individuals. And kind of a... It's reductivist, isn't it? It's so reductive. And for example, in America, when they were going to standardise kitchens they did it on the female body. So all kitchen design and standards is conforming to what a a female average is. So there's so many biases built into uh, our economies of scale and a lot of our bodies don't fit into that at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And humans aren't built to be humans of scale in the same way, right? So, And and so just... Following on from that, you have this great quote. I haven't written it down, so I'm going to have to just make it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll see if I can remember it. Yes. <laughs> it's, I've actually taken a photo. It's next to my desk at the moment because it says something along the lines of "It's not about um, finding diverse people. Diversity is actually who we are." It's just reality. It's, it's not reality.
2: diversity. It's reality. I mean, yeah. I get so annoyed when people say, "Oh, it's you know, we've got to have diversity on the panel." When what they mean is women. Um, you know. <laughs> Or, or, or and brown, you know, brown women, or, you know, or people from you know, you know, in the city of Sydney alone, you know, fifty-one percent of us were either born overseas or have at yes. least one parent born overseas. You know, like uh, it's it's ridiculous that we have this um, this idea of diversity being this added thing, when actually mm. what we're talking about is reflecting reality. And 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 I think the idea that Fiona's referring to as well is this idea of how do we actually make our society all of our structures and institutions more representative um, and and that is about you know a democratic economy democratic decision making and um, and a, a better kind of politics that incorporates more voices throughout the process um, but but in terms of kind of what makes a city uh, work a future city work in, in that sense you know for me it 's a, a future city that we can aspire to is a place that includes everyone, just a place that is fair. You know, I, I'm really sick of the discourse about the future city being a smart city. You know, this place that's full of sensors and robots well, and automation. the opposite would be a city that's a stupid city, right?
0: Like, <laughs> and no one says, "Well, are we going to have a smart city or a stupid city?" Like, so.
2: Well, I, I think we are. What we want is a human city. You know, that's right. I, I think that's mm. we want a city that is reflective of reality and is. Um, a, has different characters and tones and and actually draws on the things that humans are good at, which is making connections and and creating and caring for each other and for for country as well so so for me though it 's about fairness and it 's also about um, being an engine that accelerates uh, the achieving human flourishing. So one of the key ideas that I write about in the book is this idea from Aristotle, which is the idea of eudaimonia, which is uh, how do you achieve human flourishing, which is not just being happy, but having uh, a sense of connection and purpose and feeling like you're living by your values as well. So imagine if we could make cities engines for doing those things. Incredible.
0: Right, and Alison, when we think about that notion of um, cities being the engine room of human flourishing, as you so beautifully read, this city has a history of not doing that as well as doing that, right? Yeah, um, And well,
1: so yeah. you know, for me, Australian cities have the opportunity to, to become an extension of country, country with a capital C, to, for us to see them as cultural landscapes that are embedded with story so that, you know, when you talk about values, um, our people created really elaborate stories that they were pretty didactic, to be honest with you, but they did, teach you how to care for country through traditional knowledge. They did teach you how to care for community so that as you walked through country over time, every day you were remembering those stories because the Aboriginal people didn't have the written word. That's how song lines work, that, that these stories about how the culture and how society functions and your identity are embedded into geographic locations and into your artefacts. So if we see buildings as artefacts, if we see the spaces that we... the public domains that we walk through as an extension of that idea, then every day as we walk through these cities over time we are reinforcing a unique Australian identity and something that, something that can connect us to nature in a much more sophisticated way than anywhere else in the world because we've done it for so long. And this is, this is what I love about what Aidan Ridgway says is that this country won't truly mature until it can look itself in the mirror and see its Aboriginality. And so I think we're at this kind of renaissance, if you like, or awakening with Aboriginal culture where there is this invitation for everyone to engage in those stories and to engage in traditional knowledge because the payoff, you know, for what you're talking about, which is beyond the functional, like this is a functional city, just like any other functional city and it's a cookie-cutter sort of approach, is that... You know, when you belong to country, you care for country like it's a human being, like it's a family member. You care for country, you worry about country, you sing to country, you long for your country. So, so for me, future cities, and you know, we can. It's when you've got people like Jess Scully as the deputy mayor of. of of Sydney, you sort of think, well, it's probably going to happen in Sydney. But what I worry about is the city I live in, Coffs Harbour. You know, you've just got these dodgy, ticky-tacky mum and dad development townhouses just going up everywhere because everyone just wants to make money out of real estate. And so I think this idea of sophisticated developments is just so far from you know the local governments in those cities, so I just worry that it'll take years and years and years before you know we start actually when they're so much closer to nature, like their country is literally banging on
0: their door so just just on that then as someone who works in local government, um, what are some of the things that some of Well, that you're seeing some of the councils that are not City of Sydney. Mm. Um, When we talk about giving hope to people, Mm. just listening to what (laughs) Alison's just said, what are some of the things that we're doing now that might be the positive seeds for the future?
2: I think there are some really positive moves underway. And I think um, local governments and state governments, you know, are moving forward on climate action to an extent. and, And you are seeing it coming from the bottom up, Um, You know, I think as citizens that we're starting to have an expectation that we um, have a lighter footprint, but maybe we don't know how to achieve that expression. Um, You know, the thing that gives me hope and what I think can have the most impact is to actually get citizens' voices in the room to try and articulate not the solutions, but the values that they want experts to come up with with options for them to to choose from. Because I don't know how to design a sustainable home and I don't know enough about, um, you know, th- th- that technically to, to, as a citizen, to have that impact. But I can say, I want this to happen as my priority. And so, one of the key tools that I write about in the book is the idea of citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies, where you actually get governments to listen to the community in a way that's unmediated by, you know, Murdoch or Jenna Reinhardt or any of the other big undemocratic influences, because, 75 to 85% of Australians want immediate action on climate change. And the place where you get that actually is the built environment. You know, you can have as many keep cups as you like, but if your house is leaking energy like a sieve, then that's not going to have any impact, you know, so it's, it's about getting people in the room to articulate what their values are to government and then inc- like require government to set standards that are going to achieve those outcomes because it's about going from all of that innovation stuff being the playthings or the added bonuses of wealthy people's houses, the Tesla, versus making it something that's in every Commodore, do you know, that's, that's what we need to achieve.
0: Yep, absolutely. I think that leads me on to um, Fiona and her reading. One of the things that, Fiona, you speak about, and when we talk about citizens um, and their experiences, I think it's really important that, Citizens and their lived experiences as well are in in the room, and um, sometimes those citizens are invisible. So we've heard the saying that Winston Churchill once once said, which was um we shape the we shape our buildings and then they shape us, which I think really speaks to what you've been speaking about. And I think Fiona, you've really taken this quote to heart and um, mm. have really thought about what this means for us, and also what it meant for Winston
3: Churchill in terms of his disclosure. So you have. something to read to us now. I do, something I prepared earlier. (laughs) Um, We shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. When Winston Churchill said this in 1943, he was being more literal than poetic. He was arguing that the British Parliamentary Commons Chamber be restored to an adversarial rectangular pattern after it had been destroyed during the Blitz. At the time, Churchill was countering calls for a sweeping circular or horseshoe arrangement favoured by other legislative assemblies. During the debate, Churchill went as far as to suggest that the original shape of the chamber was responsible for the British two party system. Maintaining the narrow, tightly cornered space would therefore be essential for retaining parliamentary democracy. His argument was met with overwhelming support in the free vote, and Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, whose projects included the red telephone box, was the architect tasked with the job. Today, some 70 years after the Commons Chamber was reopened in 1950, the parliamentary website states that the confrontational design helps keep debates lively and robust, but also intimate. I think about the buildings that have shaped me, the places that have caused my body to bend and shrink, to surreptitiously separate myself from crowds and head to the margins of a room. Even when I try to resist tucking myself into a corner, my body still buckles. Candid photographs after parties or nights out reveal my body contorted in angles of effort, my lips folded into a grim line, my arms nestled together as if holding myself firm. In these photographs, I see a shell of a thing, alert and watching. I try to imagine what it would be like if all buildings were designed to keep conversations lively and robust. Buildings where I didn't need to press myself into the walls to avoid sinking in the swell of sound. Large public spaces that felt intimate by design. Just imagine the ease and democracy of it all. It's beautiful.
0: Um, you know Fiona, you speak so beautifully about both the um, physicality of things we take for granted and not only the physical like spaces that we can see but also the unseen, the sounds within our bodies and the way that sound interacts with us in so many different ways as well. until I read your book i hadn't really thought about how the external landscape so heavily actually impacts on my interior. You know, I remember when, when there's a party on at 11 o'clock in the night or 12 o'clock in the night, if you can show my age, I go to bed at 10. Um, at that time, I can hear the physical landscape. But after reading your work, I sat down and actually journaled and, and thought about the sounds I was hearing every day. And it really did change the way I started thinking about the world I was in. So if you could create a
3: city that actually worked for your body, what would it include? Ah, oh, that is a great question. Um, sound design is something that's quite specialised and it was when I started researching this book and looking into what it means to be a deaf person, there's an incredible body of research into the medical components of deafness. And this is very separate to the research around sound design and what it means to experience sound. And these are two incredible fields of information where there is little to no crossover and connection between at all. And sound is something that affects us whether we have complete hearing or no hearing at all because sound is a (coughs) physical... Experience, something that we feel and experience with our skin and our eyes and our taste buds and our ears. Listening is a whole body experience where we're taking information in from the world. A few concrete examples of how sound design can improve everyone's lives is an example of hospital environments. There's a huge amount of research to show that they're an incredibly noisy place. And that's one of the most common things any patient, when they're leaving hospital, the biggest complaint worldwide is, my God, that was noisy. I could not rest at all. Mm. And as a physiotherapist, I've spent many years working in hospital environments and I kept that my deafness quite secretive in those places because I didn't wanna be seen as incompetent or somebody who was not capable of working uh, successfully in those environments. But I found it was quite obvious that patients really do struggle where they have complete hearing or some hearing loss to not only communicate, but to be heard and understood in such a cacophony of noise. They're so loud. But when you think of the staff members as well, when you're in an environment that is so loud and research studies show it can be at times the equivalent of an aircraft carrier taking off, just a huge amount of noise that rattles through these buildings, it's exhausting. And that's when error comes into the mix, medication error, human error, the absolute fatigue and level of concentration healthcare professionals are exerting through eight, 10, 12 hour shifts to listen to other humans, but also comprehend, take that information on board. So if we were to redesign hospitals to include sound absorbing materials rather than refracting and reflecting materials, not only will it allow people to heal more holistically and get the deep sleep that they need, it will also mean that they're well cared for and safe in that environment because medical errors due to fatigue is a reality and it's something that if we had good design, we would be able to ensure the safety of um, individuals
0: It's really interesting. Um, When we talk about inclusive design, one of the things we focus on is that when we design for the edge, we're actually designing for everybody. And I think this is a really great example of that in that... um, You know, I might be in hospital for a short amount of time or I might listen to sounds for a short amount of time. It's something you do daily. So your experience in this area is so much stronger than mine is. So when we think about people and where that diversity really is, I think sometimes it's in the people who have the richest experience And when we think about that, Alison, what are the elements from the past, the elements from the experience of culture that you think we can help bring into places and spaces in today's city? You've spoken about this a little bit, um, that will actually make our cities more habitable for all of us. Um,
1: Yeah, I think there's a number of touch points um, in terms of integrating country into the built environment. Um, one of them, I think, would be um, about connecting people to country as in nature. Yeah. So we know that that creates a greater sense of wellbeing when people are connected and they, there's, you know, biophilia is the term for it. But I think um, in the Indigenous sense, it would be stories about traditional knowledge so that they're physically embedded um, through artworks, um, through stories um, it could be through language. It could be on the bench that you're sitting on, there might just be a language word and it prompts you to look into that and find out a little bit more. So when you were talking about smart cities, you know, the thing that I thought of straight away was like ecologically smart cities, like if the city itself was teaching you because um, with song lines written into geographic places you know, if you destroy those places, it it really is like going into the Mitchell Library and just setting fire to all the books. It is a library of data, of cultural information. So for me, I think, you know, it's a challenge for architects and designers to say, okay, well, if I'm adding a layer to country, and it might be of concrete and steel, you know, how am I extending um, the song lines that crisscross this country and have done for 65,000 years? How is my new layer adding to that? I think the other thing is um, about truth-telling, the memory of places. Things have happened in places. Mm -hmm. And I think there's lots of cities around the world. I think it's blue plaques and things in London. Like, there is this Idea that we will talk about what happened in different places. I think that's going to happen a lot more in Australia. The good, the bad, the ugly, and I think that we're mature enough as a country to kind of really engage in our history, our true history, as uncomfortable as it might be. um, It's not just about atrocities to Aboriginal people. Of course, you know, when we start discovering the atrocities towards the convicts, I think we'll start to understand ourselves as a country and why we do the things we do. And then I think the third part of it, which I think is the really awesome part, is ceremony. So urban planners call it activation. <laughs> and I know Annie Tennant's in the room somewhere. She'd... But it's but activation, you know, to me is ceremony. So this weekend, for instance, we're designing a ceremony at Borenguru where we're going to invite any mother, including you, Jess, to bring your child or baby to come and be welcomed to country. But the welcoming to country, it's not just a simple greeting. That child is anointed as being a caretaker of this homelands. So, you know, they'll be given seeds and a little takeaway to kind of remind them every day of, of their responsibilities to care for country. But I think, you know, we're probably... If you've, if you've never been in an Aboriginal ceremony, it's unreal, it's it's amazing, the energy and the vibrations and the spirituality and the um, euphoria of, of that, and we know that from being in great performances generally, but to be in something that is so meaningful and is about us connecting to each other and to the land, just simply by stomping on the ground together occasionally, I think is the most exciting thing that we might start seeing in the next 10, 20, or hopefully thousands of years in Australia that make us a really unique country in the world. And we're not just, you know, as Robin Boyd said, 60 years ago in the Australian ugliness, secondhand American and secondhand, you know, British. We're sick of that. We're older than them (laughs) as a country. You know, we're not the little brother and sister of those countries, we're older. And so we can show the world how to live properly. That's such beautiful framing.
0: Really beautiful. Yeah. Love it. And with that age, um, Jess, when we think about that, when we think about where to stomp, sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to work out how we can find these spaces and places um, how we can see these little seeds um, of hope and where they are. How do we actually find those seeds um, and the seedlings of the city that we want to have, that we want to nurture and we want to nourish? One way is obviously reading these books, but you know, I think that sometimes when we're out in the world, how do I find them? where are they? I think um, they're happening in the cracks, you know, and in the edges. And,
2: um, you know, the places that that get me excited, you know, uh, in my neighbourhood are the places where people reclaim space. Uh, So there's a little laneway near me where people just started putting plants out and, you know, hanging things and leaving gardening and tools and toys for kids. There's my favourite playground, um, which I'm hoping no one at the city finds out about, which I call the chaos (laughs) playground. And the chaos playground is the the place where all the people in the neighbourhood come and leave toys. So the kids come and play with each other's toys and and it's a shared space. You know, I think any place where people make rules and break rules and um, exert agency over the city and make it soften the edges and make it their own um, and share you know those are the places that that show our social urge as mm. as human creatures you know and and then I think my job is to try and enable that and to remove the obstacles to those things and then to help people connect with each other. Over those, you know, over those, uh, you know, illegal pot plants and and um, <laughs> and and toys, toys sharing, and find ways to actually build. Uh, stronger ties through those. So I think it's all in the edges, and then, um, and also, I think the other thing we need to do is to question our assumptions. I think the things that we think are uh, immutable truths about how society is organised are a very recent history, and there are much longer histories of how society was organised in this place, and there are different ways that society is organised in other places around the world right now. So, question the assumptions when someone tells you that's just the way things are or that's just how it's done ask when and where and why and you know that you can change that
0: beautiful and you're going to talk to us about one of these places great segue yes um in your book now um but i'm actually
2: i think i'm going to read from argentina lovely is that okay yeah 100 okay so just to set this up um this is a about a group, actually local government councillors in Argentina in a city called Rosario, which is one of the um, largest cities in, in Argentina outside the capital. Um, and they just actually started as activists and then got themselves elected. And the first, uh, first radical move they did was to get um, gated communities banned in their city. Um, and then what they put there was unexpected. They put a dairy co-op. In, in that land. So, in Argentina, inflation had been driving up the cost of living, resulting in a lack of employment opportunities for the urban poor, so people were suffering. By setting up El Dumbo La Resistencia, the, resist, the resistance dairy, at a stroke, the movement created jobs, access to affordable, nutritious food, and a productive alternative use for hotly contested land. There arose the project of the defence of the tumble and the possibility of demonstrating to the city as a whole that it's a lie, that that the peripheries of big cities can only be private or informal housing. Karen Tepp is the person I spoke to, that's what she told me. Instead, in these margins, sustainable life projects can be integrated, integrating decent housing with production in the peripheries and in the margins of cities. Food can be produced, which generates work that generates value, which then allows them to bring these products in a much more economical and healthy way to the whole city. Thanks to the dairy, 900 litres of milk are produced uh, a day on land that had been slated to become swimming pools, tennis courts and golf courses for the wealthy few. Each month, some of that milk is also processed into hundreds of kilos of cheese and dulce de leche, which is the caramel that we Latinos consider just as important as bread and water. Uh, These products are sold below market price through the Anti-Inflationary Mission, a food co-op that serves 600 Rosarino households. The movement didn't stop there. Realising that there were 1500 families in the area without access to any educational institutions, the movement also set up a school and a kindergarten where food, jobs and education were needed on the city edge. It was creative production and performance (laughs) space that was needed in the contested city centre. Next, Sudad Futura used the tools of the co-op to build social infrastructure in this context too. Run as a cooperative, Distrito Siete, District 7, is a social club, a performance venue and a multi-purpose space for social activism. Nightclub by weekend, workshops and community gathering space during the week.
0: Can you imagine? I can know, right? Can you imagine what we could do? And that, that, could you can... imagine what we can all do, right? Yeah.
2: It's yeah. just about questioning the assumptions and, and finding new ways of managing space, I
0: think, is one of the mm. core things we can do. Fantastic. And on that note, I'm actually going to open this up for some questions. So, thank you. Th- thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Alison. I, I was really uh, interested when you talked about the, uh, the various names we've had for what has now been a long point. And Tagali, is it? Uh it's about Sorry, I, I couldn't pronounce it, but I, I love it when I hear that we replace uh, European names with, with the original um, Indigenous names, and um, I, I think it's a great trend that I just hear occasionally, what can we do, from uh, Jess as well, in the city and throughout the country, to acknowledge the places because th- those, that, that's the story. And I didn't know about the meeting of the waters, you know, that that uh, tells a lot about the place. And um, yeah, so by accepting the original indigenous name, we're honoring the traditions and learning about the stories, thank you.
1: Oh yeah, great question. One that I think you should take on too, Jess, but, um yeah, because you know you'll probably do things by the book, whereas I did. Like I remember, I, I just thought of this story when we were doing the Adelaide Festival in two thousand and two, and we before the festival started, just went around and illegally put the language names on the street signs. Oh, <laughs> so good, which is so illegal. But but now, but I heard, I, I just I just heard in my periphery somewhere that that that, that there is this movement to yeah. change the street. Street names into into language names, and so, I mean, I think that we can take great comfort in the fact that the 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 audience for Aboriginal culture is some is so awesome now. Like, I never really thought. See, growing up, I'm from La Perouse, right? So I'm a concrete quarry. I'm from the city, and I I just never, you know, I spent a long time working and talking about this subject, you know, um, uh, culture in the built environment. But, and for 15 years, no one cared. <laughs> but now, the last five years, like, and, you know, New South Wales has just passed, you know, a planning law that you've got to integrate country into design. So I just feel like, um, yeah, I take great comfort in the fact that you know, we're going to go on quite an in-depth, deep dive, I think, as a country into into Aboriginal culture. And I'll go on that dive with you because I don't, I'm learning about my culture just as much as you are.
2: I think um, it's such an important question and, and exactly your point, Alison. It takes so much time because also it takes time to do things properly. And there's been such um, a history of trauma as well and displacement of First Nations people—that actually the people who belong to the place, who hold those stories, have been scattered to the wind, and are also need to be engaged with, and so and and brought into the conversation and work through the conversation. So, you know, at the City of Sydney, we um, we're driven by this idea, uh, which is the Yura journey, which is about recognition in the public domain, and it's a series of artworks as well as dual naming for public spaces and for parks that's really important to us. So, for example, the, the headland that looks back on Chibagali is, is Tara, which is was known as Doors Point, um, and we are trying to mark those places with language, but also through art. And there's a, a project which is called the Harbour Walk, that's a working title, it will have an Indigenous name, which uh, will document through artworks and interventions, the whole pathway around the waterways. And one of the most substantial works of those is a work called Barra by an artist named Judy Watson, which is being installed above the Opera House um, in in a couple of months uh, from now. So we have a responsibility to truth telling through the public domain and through visual art and through naming and, but it's a long process. This has been going since 2008.
0: Thank you. And next question.
2: Hello. Um, Sydney, especially, and probably New South
1: Wales more broadly, in terms of planning and building seems to be just purely driven by property developers, Mm. aided and abetted by the state government, uh, Mm. to an extent that really local councils are very much, you know, disintermediated. So what ideas do you have for trying to
2: reduce their influence or somehow mediate so that more of your ideas can be incorporated in future development? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Um, And I think we... um, and I think people's um, people's aversion to any kind of development, whether good or bad, or social housing or affordable housing, has been turned because of that um, the, the dominance of property developers. So what I th- what I think we need is actually active citizenship, and not NIMBYism, not not in my backyard, but the right kind of development is welcome, and we need to be able to differentiate as an educated population between good and useful and socially productive development and extractive development. And one of the key things, you know, for me, almost everything comes down to land and land value. It keeps coming back over and over again. And in Sydney, one of the things that prevents us from seeing more um, socially minded development taking place is the cost of land. Two thirds of the cost of a project in Sydney is the price of the land. So what can we do to take land out of the equation? And I have a bunch of projects in here like community land trusts, Um, which are models for taking land and putting it into trust for future generations. And then you lease the land to people for different uses, whether it's a park or an affordable housing project. So we need to have more options to choose from. And then as active citizens, we need to ask for those projects and not say we're against all development, we're against more extractive development.
1: Oh, look, I I just feel like people at dinner parties when they hear their friends saying, oh, I've got a quarter acre block and I can fit five townhouses on it. Like, you've just got to call them on that and just say, well, that's shit, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> good on you, you know, because you're going to make it out of fibre cement sheeting and colour bond fences and you just, you know, you've got to read the Australian ugliness. Like, 60 years old it is this year, that book. And 60 years ago, Australia looked heaps better than it does now. (laughs) Like, you know, like, I just think, and also, too, even when they regulate, like, putting, um, you know, uh, public art onto buildings, I mean, you know, a laser-cut tree just isn't art. (laughs) Like... And I know anyone who drives through uh, through Brisbane <laughs> on Kent Street there, you know what I'm talking
0: about. <laughs> that artwork on the corner there, it's terrible. So um, on that, Sorry, just on that point, though, Fiona, when you think about um, spaces and accommodation, what do you think, just on that question about um, housing and building, what are some of the things that we can learn by taking in the context of um, people with disability?
3: Yeah, I think it's... Um greatly overlooked is accessible housing. Most people uh, don't consider that until they need to modify their home. So it's really not integrated into the building process at all. And it's pretty much that economies of scale, prefabricated, two-story kind of townhouse, which as a community physiotherapist, part of my job is going into people's homes on a daily basis and helping them cope in their home environment, which has become incredibly unsafe as they've either acquired or aged with their disability. And it is a frightening thing because there's so much personal finance involved because to give up your home, can you afford to buy back into the property ladder at all? Often not, because it's rocketing ahead. So they're kind of stuck with this home that is no longer suitable to their needs and was never built for access in mind. So often split level homes, stairs everywhere, bath bathrooms that need to be remodified to fit any assistive equipment into them at all is incredibly costly and there's so many delays with the funding process, particularly around the NDIS, my age care, people are falling through the cracks consistently and really are having to make do and innovate. The idea that disabled people just take what they're given is false. Disabled people have an innovative design mindset because the world wasn't built for them and they're constantly innovating and changing what is considered standard. So to talk to disabled people in design is essential because they are literally designing the world for themselves consistently. And I think it's um, a real shift in thinking that needs to happen of the deep intellect and capability of uh, disabled people to be a part of a design conversation because we if we're lucky enough to live long enough we will experience some level of disability we are still othering the idea of disability as opposed to recognizing it as a fact of life and human experience whether it's a short change in your circumstances or a long involved change. Um, It's just something that we really need to consider at all levels and housing in particular.
0: Mm. So thank you, Fiona. Thank you.
3: I think it's
1: just that thing of, too, seeing those those things like inclusive design, like public art, like meaningful community spaces. They're not nice to haves; they're must haves. They must. Yeah. They are functional. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not luxuries. Oh, we can't afford that. You know, we just just put in a roof and a wall and that'll do. You know, I think that's it's just got to become part. And you know, and I think your book really sort of.
0: Um, Measures the economic impact of these things. So, on that note, I'd like to, we could keep talking forever. <laughs> right. um, what a fantastic panel. Um, can we put our hands together for all three people? You did a great job. Um, so, thank you. I hope that's been an enlightening and entertaining journey for you all. And make sure that you tell people about this, include people, design differently. And find those little seeds in those cracks and and, and explode them in a good way. Thank you Thanks so much. Minister, Fantastic. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.